it will be great. So welcome uh, to this uh, event, a Bruegel event on antitrust concerns on zero price markets. Um, zero price markets are markets in which uh, users, at least at one side, uh, they can access uh, online services uh, for free without paying any price. Uh, we'll discuss uh, here today one of the to issues that we'll discuss if uh, what this uh, word free means. Uh, and also, we will uh, uh, discuss and uh, we'll try to reach a conclusion, if possible. Uh, it's quite an open issue, and um, there is not so much research on, around this topic uh, on uh, the extent in which existing antitrust tools can apply in these uh, uh, markets. Uh, what are the specific uh, dimensions, the specific characteristics that we should keep in mind uh, when we apply competition policy rules? How we can define uh, uh, markets, uh, these markets, uh, basically, when we uh, want to do market analysis? Uh, how we can assess market power? And uh, what are the concerns we need to have in mind, the concerns that affect consumers, uh, firms, um, and have an impact to welfare um, on uh, this particular uh, dimension of digital economy? And um, it is a great pleasure uh, to have here uh, uh, Daniel Rubinfeld, who is a professor of law at uh, the New York University and a professor of law and economics emeritus uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, who, has, um, who is very active uh, in this field and he will uh, present uh, his uh, research work uh, uh, up to now. And uh, after Daniel's presentation, um, I have the pleasure to have uh, three very um, active and very known for the um, uh, innovative look in this uh, in the digital sector and very nice views on the topic. Uh, we have uh, Alexandre Destril, uh, who is professor of law at the University of Namur um, and a joint academic director at the CER Institute. Uh, we have uh, Paul Gilbert, uh, who is a consul, uh, Cleary, uh, Codliff, Steen, and Hamilton LLP. And uh, sorry, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he also has worked in many cases uh, of companies that they uh, are relevant uh, in these markets. And uh, we have uh, Miguel de la Mano, the executive vice president at Compass Lexicon. Uh, I would like to welcome you here. Um, and uh, without further ado, I would like to give the floor to Daniel, uh, who will make the initial presentation on the topic, and then we we'll, can discuss uh, the topics uh, the, uh, in more detail with uh, the distinguished panelists. Daniel, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Georgios. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, this, this paper is a bit unusual. It's, first of all, it's uh, co-authored with uh, an Israeli lawyer, Michal Gal. And uh, second, it's unusual because when I write most papers, I, I, I take on a narrow topic and I provide what is an answer to the topic. At issue in this paper, I take on a broad topic and I ask a lot of questions, and I leave it to all of you to provide the answers. So, <clears throat> I'm hoping you'll all go back afterward and, and think harder about uh, the questions I'm going to put on the table. Uh, so, first of all, uh, uh, free, of course, free things are out there all the time. We know all about it. Uh, <clears throat> uh, just for background, the first time I uh, 
thought about free goods was, in a, in a really serious way, was when I was the uh, chief economist at the Justice Department uh, back in the uh, administration of, of Bill Clinton. And uh, <clears throat> we were investigating Microsoft at that point in time. And Microsoft, <coughs> uh, if, you remember, if you've been around long enough to remember that, Microsoft had a dominance in the uh, operating system for, for personal computers. And uh, its Internet Explorer browser was bundled with the, with the operating system. And the browser, in fact, at one point, Microsoft announced the browser was going to be forever free. And I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what, what are the implications uh, of having something free in the operating system market and also in a market? I asked myself, is there a separate market for browsers? Uh, um, if you know that case, you know we eventually concluded that the free good was part of an anti-competitive effort to maintain monopoly in the operating system market. Uh, we thought there was a separate browser market, although I could never figure out how to show that, given that it was always free. And the court actually rejected that market definition for browsers. Didn't turn out to be very important for the case, but it was important for me because it made me worry a lot about what to do about free. <clears throat> so, um, let's see if I can get this down. So, uh, you know, we've got lots of pictures of things that are free. <clears throat> uh, every time I look around over here in Europe, Google's getting uh, attacked uh, for, um, among other things, uh, its search engine, uh, which is free, but not really, as I point out in a separate paper. Uh, a search is part of a two-sided market, and you pay for the advertisers pay rather than the people who do the search. So it's not really free, but uh, in fact, I would say anytime you see something for free, we all know that you just have to search harder to figure out where the cost ultimately is. There's very little that's free. I accept a lot of lunches that are free, and I find out they're really not, but that's another story. <laughs> Uh, okay, so, um, and by the way, Michal did all the beautiful pictures here. So, uh, so the question I, I wanted to ask was, uh, what are the implications of antitrust law? How do we think about things that are superficially free? Well, most of the time, uh, free goods are great, and there's nothing anti-competitive about it at all. In fact, it's often an opportunity to encourage people to do good things. <laughs> but I get nervous when, uh, when uh, for example, there are cross-subsidies. Uh, so it, when there are cross-subsidies, there could be an opportunity to leverage market power from one market to another. Uh, uh, there have been a lot of examples of freemium models where you uh, offer something for free now and uh, then you add a charge later on or you have two-tiered pricing. The, the example I think of, I've just been involved in a big dispute about copyright in music and it's not unusual for a company like, say, Pandora, which offers mostly free music, at least in the U.S., I think elsewhere, uh, but uh, eventually, but does offer a paid alternative for people who want higher quality uh, music and maybe want uh, better access to, to their uh, mechanism for, for uh, getting access to music. So you have a, sort of a two-tier model, and the question is, uh, can you use the free pricing to get people to upgrade to a higher priced product? Is that a problem? Probably not, but there are occasions where it might be. Uh, and free could also be used for exclusionary purposes. Here I think about certain bundling practices where, uh, <coughs> where you uh, offer a free good along with a good that is priced uh, to attempt to uh, leverage market power into a related market. <coughs> uh, and finally, uh, we see a lot of free things where people are cooperating uh, in, in an open source kind of um, um, mode of free. FOSS is free and open source. <coughs> um, and I've actually spent some time thinking about the Wikipedia model. Um, 
offering one, offering think, just thinking about things like how do you get your own biography in Wikipedia and how do you get them to let you put in some of the things that, <coughs> that only you would be willing to say about yourself, well, that's another story. Uh, and then uh, free, is, free is also obviously important in politics. Uh, lots of things seem superficially free, but turns out to have political implications. <coughs> and free is often philanthropic. So I'm not going to talk at all more, much more about those last two topics, but they're, they're quite significant in terms of the way our society works. The, the other thing that we found, others have found by studying uh, the behavioral literature is that there's something unusual about the zero price data point. Uh, this comes mostly through experimentation. So if you lower the price of goods that people are buying, you know, we all know from standard demand theory that uh, you know, quantity demand is going to rise, usually in a continuous fashion. <clears throat> but the experiment has shown when you add something and say it's free, there's almost a, 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 non, a disjoint, non-discrete jump in demand, that the idea that we can get something for free motivates a lot of us uh, to buy things we wouldn't otherwise buy, or to buy more of things we wouldn't otherwise buy. <clears throat> uh, and so this focal point of zero creates an interesting, uh, an interesting point to think about when we're trying to analyze free. Uh, so there's a big difference between saying, I'm going to offer you my browser for free forever, than saying, my browser is going to give you a really good price, and I'm going to undercut the competition. <clears throat> and uh, that's something to think about, because uh, once you think of free as a focal point, it starts to make you think that offering something for free could be, in certain cases, problematic. <clears throat> so uh, this is what we call the positive affect. Um, also, we th we've found lots of studies where free can be a way to nudge people to do things. Um, uh, and the idea of nudge has been, as you, some of you know, been a popular sort of policy tool to think about. Uh, normally, we think of uh, encouraging people just through price discounting traditionally, but now we're starting to think that we can get people to change their behavior using other ways in which we can slowly nudge people to do things, and offering them something extra for free uh, seems to have that, uh, that ability. Uh, I know when I occasionally do surveys, for example, uh, it's hard to get people to respond now because they get called all the time. Um, but uh, when you offer, you send out a mail survey and you offer a dollar bill or a euro uh, in the mail uh, with, with nothing attached, that opportunity to get money for free, it turns out, greatly increases the response rate. So this free affect is something we're quite intrigued by. Um, doesn't mean there's necessarily anything anti-competitive about it, but necessarily it, it changes behavior in ways that are, that are quite striking. So what happens is when things are free is a lot of the basic assumptions of price theory don't hold anymore. <clears throat> uh, you know, obviously, you're pricing below the cost of production. So superficially, free things look like they're predatory under traditional predatory price theory. <clears throat> uh, so that's disturbing. Uh, we usually expect there's a relationship between demand and quality, uh, the usual one. You know, you, if it's higher quality, you're going to want more of it. That's no longer true necessarily when things are free. <clears throat> um, free can be used to grow network markets, as you all know. Um, um, and secondly, uh, in the world of free goods, firms are not always going to be profit maximizers, certainly not short-run profit maximizers. Um, <clears throat> I was saying the other day, when, when I was looking at Microsoft's pricing of its uh, of its licenses for its operating system uh, a while back, uh, I knew that the operating system uh, uh, 
arrangements, the licenses they gave were at relatively low prices, presumably to, to penetrate and grow the market. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it was pretty clear that Microsoft wasn't short-run profit maximizing. I actually found it really hard to figure out what the long-run profit maximizing price was, and we never actually put that forward in the complaint that we developed. Uh, but nevertheless, I kept thinking, how do I figure out what's going on with the pricing of this product that is superficially free and a company that's not maximizing at least something that we can directly measure, which is short-run profits. <clears throat> and the same, uh, the same, I think, would be uh, true if we were looking at Google's behavior, which has gotten a lot of attention over here in Europe in the last couple of years. Uh, so uh, we have a list here, as I'm going through, of some of the various uh, effects that free goods can have. Uh, and what we tried to do in the paper is to just go through and analyze uh, all the things that are free. But there are a few cases, and those are the ones many of us are concerned about, where free might be a problem. And the first example we have is uh, uh, certain exclusionary practices. And the, the typical example would be, I should have gone back, typical example would be uh, a bundling a practice where uh, you offer, uh, you're, you're purchasing one, one product for a price, but the bundled product, the extra bundled product is free. But it turns out that when you do that, uh, under certain circumstances, uh, depending on the price you're offering for the, for the positive price good, uh, uh, and depending on the nature of the bundle, whether it's a pure bundle or a mixed bundle, uh, you can encourage people to move into the uh, free product and make it very difficult for someone else to compete. Uh, because <clears throat> we usually think in order to compete for the, for the market that's free, you have to be able to achieve either minimum viable scale, meaning minimum sufficient scale to operate uh, at a profit, or minimum efficient scale, the scale to operate at the, at the lowest cost. <clears throat> and if you're competing against something that's free, it's pretty hard to stay in business for the long term in order to do that. So bundling a product that's free, at least superficially, raises questions about whether the, the practice might be exclusionary, meaning just exclusionary, meaning just make it hard for someone to compete very effectively. In the extreme, it could be even predatory, basically driving someone out of the market. <clears throat> and uh, this issue has come up uh, a number of times for me. I get involved in a lot of acquisitions in the US. Uh, <clears throat> and I don't think I wrote it here, but I did a, recently did an acquisition uh, where Nielsen acquired Arbitron. Nielsen does TV ratings. Arbitron does radio ratings. <clears throat> and uh, there was an issue uh, about what to, do, what to do with ratings involving the internet. Uh, because a lot of, nowadays, many of us, uh, are, or many of our young friends, are streaming everything on the internet. <clears throat> so uh, in that world, uh, there is no consistent way of rating uh, those, uh, <clears throat> those activities, and many of them are superficially free. You often get to stream for free if you actually are paying elsewhere. So it turned out that Nielsen and Arbitron were both interested in rating streaming services, but no one had a consistent method of doing it. And all the pricing models were not very helpful because the streaming was ostensibly free. <clears throat> so, uh, so I ended up having some interesting discussions with, uh, with my friends at the uh, <coughs> Department of Justice trying to figure out uh, what to do about this merger, where I was thinking it's not much of a problem. I was working for Nielsen on this matter. Uh, uh, and eventually, the deal went through with, with uh, very little uh, in the way of fixes. And part of the reason was, uh, just like I couldn't define a relevant market and figure out exactly what the story of competitive effects was, neither could the Department of Justice. So imagine that you're, you're one of the, the folks doing, 
doing the merger analysis and you have to think about writing a complaint and you don't even know what the market is and you have, certainly have no idea what the long-term competitive effects were. So we got that merger through free. I actually don't think there will be any adverse competitive effects. Uh, I actually believe that, but, but I do say, I do did find that it was very hard for both myself and for my counterparts at the agency to try to figure out how to actually, actually analyze the deal. <clears throat> okay, so we also uh, talk about uh, search and other freestanding free goods. I'll, I'll come back to that if we have time. <clears throat> so basically, uh, if you look at all these notes I have while I'm talking, there are just a lot of indicators and things that are different uh, when you have free goods. And uh, it just really changes the character of the analysis. So uh, what we're trying to think about, given that there is the potential for exclusionary and predatory conduct using free goods, how do we apply the standard analysis of merger analysis or analysis of non-competitive effects? How do we apply the analysis when things are free? And the answer is, uh, the answers are not very good at this point. We just have a lot of unanswered questions. Uh, we know ad there can be adverse effects on production, on quality. We know consumer choice can be affected. Uh, and there may even be fairness considerations if that happens to be something you think is important. Uh, but it's very, very difficult to make this workable. So an example, the example we talk about a bit in the paper is, is market definition. Uh, as I was just saying, saying uh, earlier, one of my colleagues here, uh, in, in, the, in the US, uh, we, we require, and the same is similar here in Europe, require market definition and putting together a complaint under certain violations. Uh, in the US, that would be certainly true under any monopolization claim <clears throat> and, uh, and certainly true with any mergers. So if you're gonna have to define a market first and the market involves a free good, you have a problem. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, when I'm actually analyzing mergers, I don't worry about that because you can do competitive analysis without defining a market. But when you're writing the complaint, that's another story. You actually have to have a market definition. And if you try to follow the, our, our merger guidelines, either here or in Europe, it's pretty hard to do because we, we apply a standard uh, SNP test. We look for what would happen if there's a small uh, uh, increase in price of 5 or 10%, and we ask what implication that would have. It's hard. Uh, it's hard to increase price from zero by five or ten percent without getting above zero, so you can't use the standard SNP test. Uh, what we suggest—I uh, think I have it elsewhere in the paper, but not right here—we suggest you consider analyzing the quality of the product, not the price of the product. In which case, it is possible theoretically to put together a SNP test. Although I've never seen anyone do that in a way that was that constructive. It's just an idea we have. Uh, but the other problem is if you're analyzing, mer if you're analyzing, uh, uh, not analyzing mergers and you're looking at the behavior of someone who's a potential monopolist, uh, there's no way you should be talking about the uh, SNP test on a monopolist price because monopolist is already maximizing profits at that price. It's never going to be profitable to raise price. And so we have to answer, answer the question of what happens as you deviate from a competitive price, which we almost never know. So, uh, so pricing is just much more complicated. Market definition is much more complicated. Uh, with respect to search, I think the problem's easily solvable, but I'm in a minority here. Be I say it's solvable because you shouldn't say that search is a relevant market. You can talk about Google being dominant in search, which may be correct, 
But if you want to talk about a relevant market, you have to look where the money is. And so I would say, and have said in writing, <coughs> the relevant market is the market for online advertising. <coughs> and along with the online advertising comes a bundle that includes search. If you start with that beginning, you can actually use most of the standard tools of competition analysis to look at Google's behavior and conclude whatever you want uh, <coughs> with respect to uh, the, the, the issues the FTC was looking at. They concluded there was no problem. You folks over here in Europe were looking at a different, although somewhat related, set of issues, and I haven't pursued those, so I will not specifically comment about them. <coughs> but nevertheless, if you start with the right market definition, I would argue, uh, which should focus on advertising, that is Google's, by far Google's primary source of revenue, uh, I think you can get a much bigger picture on the practices you're, you're looking at. <coughs> so in the paper, if you're interested, we look at a bunch of other deals, uh, both, here and, uh, both here and in the U.S., uh, where free goods are involved. And it's, it's striking to me how often this issue comes up. Uh, um, we mentioned Microsoft Skype, and there are a lot of others. Um, going back to the basic methods, let's just take a couple more minutes. Market power issues are different with free goods because <clears throat> um, one of the major indicators of market power has often been the margins that, that people earn. But as I think most of you know, when you're looking at a lot of high-tech industries, particularly ones involving network effects, margins are often very high, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, even though firms don't have much market power. That's true in almost every software uh, industry you can imagine. <clears throat> so, uh, and, and if the price is zero, on the other hand, if the price is zero, margins are negative, and that doesn't indicate anything as well. So. This forces us, I would say, to look harder at what's really constraining market behavior, and that would be barriers to entry. <coughs> and we have to extend our analysis of barriers to entry uh, more deeply to cover uh, what drives firms to issue things for free. Uh, secondly, innovation is often likely to be important in high tech. And even though this is a very hard area that I could talk about for hours, but I only have about three minutes. Uh, uh, we have to think about that. And with innovation, uh, again, it's often true that firms are interested in trying to motivate innovation. Uh, one way they can do that is learning more about a consumer's behavior and learning how to respond to it. So giving away things for free here might be pro-competitive. It might be a way to induce people to reveal <coughs> something about their tastes and preferences so that you can make the kind of investments and, and, and make the kind of innovations you really need. So free here could be a, a strong motivator of pro-competitive effects. And when we think about the standard models of innovation, this is no, almost never accounted for. So I, I'm encouraging economists sort of who are interested in innovation to think, uh, think about the relationship between firms' behavior and giving away things for free, <coughs> which may, may or may not be beneficial in the short run, depending on whether it's bundled and how it's bundled, but could actually be very, uh, very beneficial in the long run if, if it turns out to improve in innovation. <clears throat> we think there is something uh, true to that and true about that in the Microsoft uh, Skype deal. So uh, uh, it turns out that you know, with, anything, with any complex behavior, you get type one and type two errors, giving away something for free uh, <clears throat> could, be, uh, could be a great thing or could be a bad thing. What's important is that you have to look both at the free goods market and the related market that's being affected by what's giving away, given away for free. And the point here is if you only look at one of them, you're, you're going to get the wrong result. <clears throat> so uh, 
lot of problems to think about. Um, there's predatory pricing, talked about before. Uh, we looked with predatory pricing and free goods at a bunch of cases. Some of you may know. You can see them listed up on, on the chart. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we looked at all about, uh, also about non-monetary effects uh, and, and tried to figure out how to analyze those as well. Again, more and more questions, uh, very few answers. <laughs> um, and uh, I think the uh, final thing that I wanted to mention is we do worry a lot about, or I worry a lot about cases where there's monopolizing behavior because that gets a lot of attention from the agencies. <clears throat> uh, and uh, giving away for things for free can have the potential adverse effect uh, of, <clears throat> as, of getting, getting a big lead and big growth in the market. Uh, <clears throat> and that could lead to monopoly power. Monopoly power per se is not illegal, of course, but that makes you want to look closer at the practices that monopolize monopolies engage in. And one of the problems we know, we all know, we face in high tech is uh, once a firm has developed market power and used it inappropriately, it's very hard to undo that. We can't go back. When I was looking at the Microsoft maintenance and monopoly case and looking at Microsoft's behavior, which I did think was anti-competitive, and I was thinking about, it, about remedies, I knew that one of the things I could not consider would be to have Microsoft go back five years and no longer give away its browser and no longer engage in certain other practices that we thought were illegal uh, and start over and maybe or maybe they would or not would not be more innovative. That's just not on the table. <clears throat> in the end, the remedies that were imposed by others were relatively mild and Microsoft has learned over the years to be, uh, I think, to be much more competitive. To, uh, they're facing the, the new world they're facing in where the cloud is important and and smartphones are driving things, not PCs. Microsoft has modified its behavior to be, I think, to be much more competitive. <clears throat> Nevertheless, we still have to worry about the potential for firms to acquire monopoly positions and then to use them inappropriately. And those are, that, those are the issues on the table. Things being free or nearly free greatly complicate the analysis. <clears throat> I've laid out the problems. I'm hoping all of you in the room will, uh, will provide me answers. And I'm looking forward to getting emails from all of you <laughs> with uh, with your answers to any of my questions. I'd be happy to make make you a co-author of the next paper. <laughs> so let me stop there and let's uh, get a chance to hear from people who really know all the answers. <laughs> Thanks so much, Daniel. Indeed, so many questions that can be discussed and uh, uh, try to approach an answer. Before moving uh, forward, um, let me ask you the following. In digital markets and uh, in uh, markets that we have a zero price involved, let's say, uh, we have experienced a lot of mergers. Um, and it is a typical, um, a typical situation is a big company that buys a, a small and fast-growing company. Do you see any strategic effect be behind these uh, merger decisions? And do you believe that we should look uh, at these mergers from more uh, uh, dynamic point of view by examining what would be the potential competition if this no merger does not take place? Uh, but that's a hard question. I, I uh, actually uh, think a lot of the acquisitions of the small companies are probably pro-competitive because uh, the bigger company may see an opportunity to take some innovative ideas put together by the smaller company and to to turn them to make them blossom to turn them into uh, to beneficial activities in a way that the smaller company couldn't do. So that my initial inclination is to think it's not problematic. 
<coughs> but I do worry occasionally, uh, I worry occasionally about cases where, specific cases where applying the smaller company is gonna cut off a line of research of R&D that would be problematic. <coughs> so, um, uh, because I, and I've talked to a number of people whose company has been acquired and they're usually pretty happy. They, they're getting pretty well rewarded for their innovation. Uh, I think it's too hard for the, it's very hard for the agencies to imagine and analyze <coughs> what kind of innovation would occur five or 10 years down the road were there not to be an acquisition. <coughs> so I would say I, w I wouldn't have a problem with acquisitions like that unless I had clear evidence the line of R&D research was being, was being foregone. So <coughs> if you're really deeply interested in this, there was a merger that the FTC looked at many years ago between Novozyme and Genzyme. These are, these are two companies investing in R&D of, of uh, some rare drugs called orphan drugs. <coughs> and there the merger, I thought, would have been anti-competitive if the FTC had woken up and analyzed it in time, but they didn't hear about it until after the merger was completed. And the reason I thought it would have been anti-competitive is because the company they required was pursuing one line of R&D research, and the, company, the acquiring company was pursuing another line and I thought they would shut down one line of research. And at the time, I thought both lines were equally potentially profitable, and this was gonna lose the chance of having a great new drug. Uh, but the deal went through partly because the, the CEO of the company being acquired gave the most effective deposition I've ever read. He, he had two children who suffered from the disease that was gonna be cured uh, by the new drug, and he said that he was gonna head research into the new company. They hired him to take over the new research. And he said, I guarantee you this will, this will be a good result. <coughs> I thought we're never going to be able to block that merger <coughs> after that deposition. Although I did hear years later that he had second thoughts about it, but that's another story. Um, thanks for the clear answer on this. Um, one uh, second question before I move to Paul. Um, I mean, many people believe that uh, in, uh, in antitrust cases, in digital market and zero price uh, markets, uh, and how uh, firms behave. Um, European authorities follow a different approach than the US ones. Um, in your view, is this the case? And what do you think are the reasons? Well, for, uh, yes, we're talking about Article 102. I think, I think uh, the law here is somewhat different than the US. So in, in the US, uh, uh, we don't have formally an abusive dominance rule, although we have something very similar to it. And we, uh, we tend in the US uh, in enforcing uh, Section 2 of the Sherman Act to, uh, to, I would say, give more of the benefit of the doubt to practices that occur when firms have substantial market power <coughs> or monopoly power. Uh, we, tend to, we tend to give more of the benefit of the doubt to the parties, and so we have a stiffer hurdle to overcome, whereas my, my experience in, in Europe has been <coughs> that, uh, that uh, it's a little easier to go after practices of firms that, that are in dominant positions. So I don't know whether, you know, it's a complicated issue to describe the source of all the differences because uh, we operate, as you know, in a common law system in the U.S. and you, ha and, and you don't. Uh, so it's, in the U.S., the, the explanation for why, <coughs> why we take a tougher stand would involve a long discussion of our case law. And well, <laughs> you've got the equivalent, but it's a little different here in Europe. So we, we would have to have a much longer conversation uh, to, to go in advance of that because we have to talk about a lot of the cases here in the, in the U.S. But <clears throat> I would say it's an area that I find troubling because I believe that <clears throat> it's in all of our joint interests to pursue uh, uh, the analysis of competition issues along similar lines. 
<clears throat> and we generally do. Uh, I found just when I was in the government and even afterward that, <clears throat> that when I talked to my counterparts over here in Europe, we had very similar views of how to do things. We use the same economic models. We have the same, same basic framework. And so I see, when I see a divergence in, in how you look at abusive dominance, and how the U.S. looks at it, that worries me. So I'm hoping, actually, that continued discussions, some of which will occur, <coughs> occur in the background, uh, will, will hopefully lead us in, into going in similar directions. I'm pretty sure that should happen on the economic side because the economists in both places use exactly the same models and exactly the same framework. <coughs> but we do have this issue that the law is somewhat different in both countries. So I'm hoping that, that the differences I see will, will, uh, will be diminished over time. I think it's in our joint interest for that to happen. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, <coughs> Paul, uh, yes. Happy to have your initial thoughts on the topic. Very good. Um, can people hear me? Great. Well, first thing to say, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent paper, and if anyone here hasn't, hasn't had the opportunity to read the paper, I, I do genuinely commend it to you. I don't think I read it only because it was provided to me free of charge. I think I <laughs> probably would have paid, but I, having read the paper, I'm now not so sure. Maybe I was, I was nudged that way. Um, but, but I guess, you know, I've got a few minutes to, to react, and as, as, a, as, a, as a competition lawyer, um, you know, the question for me was, was, do we have the right antitrust tools? Can the traditional antitrust tools be applied uh, to, to, to these... Um, zero cost, these free, free products. And I think one of my reactions was, you can see from the, the heading on the, on the slides, is, is, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. And I, I don't know if that expression translates very well into to other languages, but really you know, what it means is when you get something for free, don't question it too much because you're getting a good thing. So that, that's sort of, that was one of my reactions, and I'll explain why. So... As a competition lawyer, and I, economists and other lawyers in the room will, will, will probably recognize this, you know, we have sometimes have a, a difficult task explaining, explaining to our, our clients why, 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 why we see things as a problem, an antitrust problem, and, and how we advise them to, to present their businesses to the competition authorities. Uh, we're in a look through the looking glass world where you know, business people are used to saying they've got the best products, they're unparalleled, they're uniquely successful have to then explain to a competition authority why actually they're just the same as everybody else and their market share can be taken away in, in five minutes. And, and then when we, get to, we, when we get to free goods, it becomes even more difficult because you have, I don't think that's because I'm doing that my clients and I don't think it's, it's, it's moaning about being a competition law, which is the best job in the world, of course. It, it's, it's because these are, generally speaking, almost always, if not always, uh, firms that are, see themselves in fiercely competitive environments, they're giving away free products which they see as beneficial for the consumers and the users. Uh, and, and it's even more difficult to, to see why these, why these should be a problem. And I think when you kind of stop and think about it, free products usually, and there are exceptions of course, but usually encourage that competitive process. Well, you have a, a free online service, particularly, it doesn't have to be online, but a free service uh, it's very easy for, uh, for, for users and consumers to, to multi-home, whether that's using a search service, a price comparison service, a social media service. But it's not only online. It, it, it can extend to, for example, free newspapers. If you're given away a free newspaper when you get on the train, the chances are you're going to read it, and you might read more newspapers than you did before, 
it, it, it expands consumption uh, as well as allowing users to, to multi-home far more easily than if they had to, to pay for the service or the product in the first place. And of course, it, it expands consumption to those consumers who wouldn't or couldn't otherwise pay. Uh, and fi finally, on, the, on the, the list you'll see on the slides, um, switching costs are very low. To, to switch from uh, one price comparison service to another, one search engine to another, there is a small amount of your time involved, but, but really nothing else. And I think if you, history, history, recent history shows that comp competitors do react positively to, to competitors who begin giving away goods or services uh, for free. Uh, you see this, I've already mentioned um, newspapers in, in the UK where, where I'm based. It started off with, with the Metro, and there's a Metro also in, in Brussels, um, but a free, a free morning newspaper in London. And, and what was the reaction to that? Well, it didn't push others out. It actually encouraged others to do the same. So you now have a rival, the City AM. And you have the Evening Standard, which used to be paid for, is now free. So you see those responses. And you see innovation in, in the online world. You see the successive growth of social media uh, platforms where some have overtaken others and some coexist. And you see it in search. Um, already mentioned, mentioned Google today. It's one of my clients. I'm not speaking for Google. Um, but um, you see that the, the older search engines, the outer vistas of this world, were, were, were overtaken by Google. It started from a very, very small base. Um, but actually now Google is starting to be overtaken by, uh, by competitors. So Amazon, for example, in, in the product shopping sphere, very, very quickly overtaken, uh, overtaken uh, the, general, the general search services. So free, free, giving away products for free on the consumer side can be extremely beneficial. Uh, and generally speaking, encourages, encourages competition. But I agree, I mean, the question is, how do you measure those competitive effects, whether they are, wh whether they are, whether they are good or bad? Um, I won't dwell on advertising. I think we've already covered um, the effects on the advertising market. I mean, certainly it's possible to measure, at least in theory, the effect on, on, on prices for, for advertisers. Um, but I, you know, my suggestion is that the effect would have to be the, the conduct of the effect would have to be pretty extraordinary given the vast array of advertising opportunities online and also offline. Um, the question was raised about whether the SNP test, the, 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 the small but significant non-transitory increase in price test, is, is, is um, applicable or, or easy to apply at least in, in, in these markets. And I think, I mean, yes, it certainly is in theory, and I think I, I might suggest that it's perhaps more applicable than, than was, was suggested previously. Um, now, the picture of the Toblerone, uh, this is big, big news in the UK. Over the last news, forget the, U the US elections, everybody's talking about Toblerones. Uh, and, and, and what has happened for those who haven't caught up on this is, is that in, in response to rising costs, maybe, maybe, but not necessarily caused by the, the, the drop in the pound after the, after the referendum vote, um, everything's getting more expensive in supermarkets, and, and, uh, and Toblerone has decided that it, it's not going to make its product more expensive but it is going to give you less, less chocolate. Um, so it's what's dubbed shrinkflation, and there's lots of examples of shrinkflation in the UK at the moment. So, so yes, you do. the price hasn't changed, but you're getting less. So in a way, that is a price increase. And this, this issue came up in, in a merger case, the UK merger case Poundland and 99p stores. Now, clearly, this isn't, this isn't a zero price uh, market, but it, but, it, but it illustrates the point. This was a merger between a shop which sold everything for a pound and a shop that sold everything for 99p. Now, there are exceptions to that, but that's the, that's the headline point. 
and, and at least one of the questions of what was actually genuinely a fascinating case and well worth a read if anyone's got the time is, you know, can prices go up as a result of this merger? And of course, the answer is, well, <laughs> yes and no. I mean, the things that products are still going to be sold as a pound, but you're getting less if the chocolate bar is smaller or the, or the, or the bottle of shampoo is smaller or you get three, three in your bundle rather than four or whatever. So, so I think, you know, you can, you can apply these principles to, to markets even where there's a, where there's, where there's a fixed, uh, fixed price point. But I, I completely agree uh, with, with, with the comments that have already been made about, about innovation. You know, if what you're looking for is the, the price is fixed, but what you get for your money, whether that's quality or size or whatever, is less, you have to, you have to measure that some way. And it gets extremely difficult right. where what you're looking at is, is future innovation. What, what would, you know, how can a competition authority know what the innovation would have been or would be in two years' time? It, it's, it's almost impossible and pro probably is impossible. Now, there are, there are some exceptions to this, and we've already had mention of the, of the, the browser case, the Microsoft, Microsoft um, tying uh, Windows to the browser, and I think an important uh, factual element to, to, the, to at least the European Commission's uh, investigation and, and finding of abuse in that case was evidence that, that, that Microsoft had really stopped investing in its Internet Explorer uh, product over a number of years. The number of staff involved in that innovation was drastically cut, and there were fewer new releases of the product and so on. And that was going on at a time when other browsers were developing more innovative products but were, not, were unable to get, to get traction uh, in the market. And, and, it, and it's not because people didn't know they were there. I mean, this is a, this is a feature of particularly online markets. People are very, very quick to notice when a new innovative uh, product, product comes along. So I think, you know, it's very difficult to, to, measure, to measure future innovation and the effects on that. But there are some... There are some exceptions to it. And so, I'll keep myself a little in conclusion. I, free goods are, are generally good, and we talked about free lunches, and I'd, I'd already been thinking about free lunches. I, mean, I, I think there is, there is such a thing as a free lunch here, because if you're having your free lunch on, on one social media site, the, the person who's paying for that service to you doesn't mind. You know, it, and I think it probably doesn't matter to an extent whether that is whether this is a service that's funded by someone who's just out of the goodness of their heart or Wikipedia or, or something of that kind, or whether it's funded by advertisers. The person paying for it is very happy to pay for that service to be provided. And if you don't like the, the social media service you're using or the price comparison service you're using, you can walk out and, and eat your lunch next door. So it seems to me you know, there are a lot of positives, a lot of competitive benefits <coughs> of, of products, zero-price products. Um, antitrust concerns, yes, they may exist, but they're likely to be rare. It requires a high evidentiary standard, I think, to, to really show uh, that future innovation will be harmed. Um, but I do think that the traditional antitrust tools have shown to be capable of addressing those concerns. Thank you, Paul. Um, two questions. The first one is motivated by the concerns, uh, some of the concerns that Daniel mentioned in his presentation. So to you, network effects, uh, battling and potential exclusionary um, effects are not an issue in these markets? Yeah, I mean, I, I look. I think um, I think I think bundling is 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 the one that's more obviously uh, potentially a concern, um, and you see that. in we've talked a lot about the the browser case. Um, th there, you have a, a, a free product, but uh, but actually, it's it's so interwoven technically uh, with, with with Windows um, that really there were innovative products they couldn't get traction. I think the network effects is 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 a little bit more difficult. I think it's something that people talk a lot about in in, in theory. But if you look at the, the competition between platforms, 
actually hasn't really played out that way. You, you do have very quick growth of, of new, new platforms, which the theory suggests will be very, very difficult to get off the ground. And I think you know, online, where, where, where users are extremely knowledgeable, uh, frankly, quite fickle, where there's plenty of information about the next big thing. People are waiting for the next big thing all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I get the point, but I think in practice those, those effects have been overcome. Thank you. One second question, if uh, you allow me. So you started your presentation by saying that these business models uh, of offering free products um, have a motive of being uh, beneficial for consumers. What about profit maximization? Is there any motive uh, like that? For example, why these firms to choose to offer free products instead of uh, charging a subscription fee, at least in the, uh, the side of the market that we have this uh, free element? Yeah, I think it's probably two, two, uh, two reactions to that. I mean, I think certainly when we're talking about two-sided markets, usually those that are funded by advertising, I mean, very much they are, they're, they're, trying, to make, they're trying to make money on the advertising side. They can only do that if what they're offering to the users, the consumers, is A, free in most of these cases, and, and B, uh, a very innovative product. So, I mean, yes, I think at a, at a macro level what you have is, at a high level at least, you, what you have is businesses that are trying to, trying to make money because they're, they're, they're in business. But I think you know, when you talk to the, to, to, to the engineers who are, are the innovators in these industries, that's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about how can I make my product better than the next competitors coming in. And when, when, you, when you do look at these cases, and one, one point I didn't make before is, you know, you, you, competition authorities will look at internal documents. They'll look at who, do, who, does, who does the company fear? Who does it see as its competitors? Is it worried about becoming obsolete? Those are useful, useful pieces of evidence in any antitrust, antitrust review. But the engineers, I don't see them, from my experience, being, being motivated by making the company more money. I see them motivated by trying to develop the next, the next big thing. Thanks so much. Uh, Miguel, your thoughts? You, have, uh, you are connected, so you can... Okay, yeah. very good. Thank you. Well, it is, we've heard already from Dan and, and Paul about free lunches, and it is hard to persuade an audience which we just had a free lunch, that there is no such a thing as a free lunch. Uh, but then again, um, you came here to listen to Dan and Paul and Alexander and George. You know, your punishment is you have to listen to me. So, so you're paying on a non-currency, obviously. Now, other times, someone else's pays, right? Um, like in a two-sided platform, you have men who have to pay for the beers on a Thursday night when women may be getting them for free. Uh, or you have, you know, less obviously, Ryanair uh, may give you a free flight, you know, from uh, Brussels to uh, Lanzarote, but um, someone's going to be paying for that last seat at a premium price, and of course, uh, a lot of people are going to be buying online or buying for, for baggage. Someone is paying. Um, sometimes firms create the illusion uh, that there's something is for free, like that famous sign on, on a bar that says, free beer tomorrow. Or, or for example, uh, in politics, uh, Trump has been persuading half of the US that Mexico is going to pay for uh, you know, 10,000, know, 1,000 miles of feet wall. Uh, so, you know, having settled that, in my view, there is, and despite being an economist, uh, you know, and objecting to, to you know, the guru who, who, who said this, you know, about no free lunches, just free lunch, I do think there is such a thing as, as free lunches. In fact, you know, um, every time there's a transaction um, where, you know, there's a win-win situation, 
someone's willing to, willing to pay less for what someone's willing to sell. Uh, that creates, what my view is, you know, the equivalent of a free lunch. Right? You generate value, you generate welfare. And same, therefore, the same happens with, with free goods. You know, we, we shouldn't question too much, and I completely agree with Paul said, um, you know, whether or not this is uh, going to be a problem. There, there's so many value being created there, and, and we need to work really hard uh, where it is maybe, but uh, it may well be that we have a free lunch uh, in front of us. Now, let me just point out something Don said earlier. You know, free is somewhat a, a human hot button, right? Um, and you know, when, when Ben and Jerry uh, give uh, free ice cream or when Starbucks gives free coffee, uh, thousands of people queue for hours, you know, well, not, maybe not hours, but you know, for a long, long time to get this free, even though they can buy the same product any given day, one or two, or, or two euros. Um, but in a way, bringing a price down to zero generates a lot of demand, more demand that may be commensurate to the lowering of the price, and, and there's maybe because there's a perception that somehow the good increases in value, right? And that may have consequences in bundling, of course. We see bundling phenomena where where something is given for free and this may generate you know, a, a, a sort of incentive to buy the product because you get the feeling you get something for free which is then more valuable than you're actually maybe paying for. Now, there's a good example um, uh, experiment which I think Dan alluded to which is run by Dan Ariely where he's, which reflects the, the sort of free effect. And, and for those of you that don't know it, what Dan Ariely did is he gave people a choice between a, a Lindt chocolate uh, bar uh, for 15 cents and a Hershey's keys. Oh, okay. Well, that means that I'm being listening. <laughs> hearing anything what I was saying. <laughs> You're very polite. Uh, uh, and um, and you know, people typically will look at the price difference. You know, Hershey's keys for one cent, a little tiny chocolate, and Lind bar for 15 cents, and they tend to go for the Lind bar because you know, 14 cents difference is not a lot, and and Lind, you know. If you're like me, a uh, chocolate gourmet, you'll know that Lind chocolate is the best in the world. No questions asked. Um, but then, all of a sudden, in a control group, he reduces the price of both goods by one cent. All of a sudden, a Hershey's Kiss is for free. And the Lind bar is 14 cents. Everyone goes and gets the Hershey's Kiss, right? Uh, so you might say, well, there's this, this, this value effect with free. But it actually goes the other way around, too, right? He has another experiment where he gives, in this case, a, a Starburst or a Sugus uh, candy uh, and offers it uh, for, for one cent, and people typically buy four of those. But the, the control group offers it for free. And what people do is they, they take one, but no more than one. They contain themselves. Uh, so demand goes down despite the product has become free. Now, what is the reason for that? Well, part of the reason is that when it comes to uh, free products, you remove, you remove from the market, you remove the price setting mechanism, and other considerations come into play in your, in your valuation of the, of the product, other moral considerations come into play, uh, which affect your judgment. And that is because it's really hard for us as humans to, to put a price on something. We really typically rely on the market to tell us what the right price is. So you go to public transportation, here in Brussels it costs a euro 50 cents, and you assume that's the price of public transportation. You go to London, and you feel like a sucker, right? Because you're going to be paying five euros you know, to take the, the tube. But then you go to Tallinn, and it turns out that public transportation is for free. It's completely subsidized. And you think, well, you know, this, maybe they should be doing something in Brussels like this. So you constantly rely on the market to tell you what the price actually is. And that's where you know, some of the problems from a competition perspective may come in. However, before I get there, 
Actually, it's definitely not new, right? Uh, in 901, Gillette already came up with this, the racers and the blades and uh, gave away the racers with, um, with marshmallows and even with bank accounts. They would have the famous slogan, safe and safe. Uh, and the whole idea was that you will you'll get this racer for free, but then you'll have pretty high margin on the, on the blades, right? And they made a whole business of that, and that's the business practice is now prevalent across all sorts of industries and sectors. Competition authorities looked into this, do not object. They see that this generates dynamic competition, and there's no reason one should typically worry about it. Um, now, there's also, what, what the internet has done is, of course, it's created opportunities for, um, and has lowered the cost of distribution almost to zero, the marginal cost of distribution almost to zero. Production costs are always also going down almost to zero. And what you would expect in a competitive environment is that this generates a lot of dynamic competition and new business models and new ideas uh, to compete in this, in this setup, right? So you have now, uh, beyond the, the Gillette um, uh, way of competing, you have, for example, the freemium models, which we've have heard about, right? Um, where typically you rely on 1% of your customer base to pay for the other 99% that gets uh, a sort of reduced basic level of the service uh, for free. Um, it's certainly an, an ideal way to, uh, to you know, introduce a product into the market and get yourself known and rely on, 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 on learning from customer's experience in order to provide a better, a better service. Um, there's also cross-subsidization. Cross-subsidization, again, has always been going on for a long, long time. Uh, is, is, in a way, the, the celebrity example is Gillette, but it happens now in digital worlds, um, and, but also outside the digital sphere. Arctic Monkeys, I don't know if you know this, this band, this UK band group, they burned CDs and gave them away in order to attract people to their concerts, and that's how they became uh, well-known, a very popular strategy. Someone that you also may know about, John Oliver. Uh, John Oliver is a famous comedian, runs a, a, a comedy news shows in the US. Maybe uh, he's the only guy who has managed to uh, challenge Trump and criticize Trump, and yet um, Trump has decided not to respond to him. Right? That, that's how much of a, of, a, of a power this guy has, a superstar in the US. He became famous by uh, putting out a free podcast which allowed him to penetrate the very, very competitive stand-up comedy market in the U.S. and become known as ourselves. By the, by the way, shamelessly, I'll, I'll use this opportunity to announce that um, I'm also going to try and become more known in the world of competition enforcement by coming up with a podcast with someone, a colleague, lawyer, who will remain unknown because I think he still is having second thoughts on whether or not he should associate himself with me on this venture. Uh, so, you know, maybe next time we'll, we'll come with the experience of coming with a free product and see what, what happens. Uh, but you know, my point about, about this, all this is that all these strategies are not unique. They're deployed in the real world, they're deployed in the digital world, in the physical world, in the digital world. Um, and and this, is a, 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 you know, this is all a manifestation of very, very tough competition. So do we have anything to worry about from a competition perspective? I think there's, there's some situations where um, there might be concerns. Uh, when we pay with uh, our own data, uh, sorry, our, uh, you know, our own information as a currency for free services. Um, maybe it's advisable that um, a regulator or the government checks that you know, that data is not misused. That makes perfect sense to me. Uh, but it's not, there's no role there for a competition authority, as far as I can tell, to intervene. Um, similarly, there are considerations of fairness. Um, for example, you might have a bank that offers you a, a free checking account um, and free credit card and so forth. And obviously that, they don't do it because they're nice people. Sometimes they are, but 
not always. And they do it because they expect to get money on the interest rate when you have an overdraft. The problem is that typically is the least, less affluent in society that will end up paying for the richer people that never get into overdraft situations. Um, and maybe there is therefore uh, a, a role, again, not for a competition authority, but for a regulator to intervene and make sure that inequalities or, or unfairness uh, doesn't um, you know, develop beyond what is reasonable uh, because of very tough competition. Um, final scenario where I think intervention may be necessary is when it comes to the you know, degradation of the media. It used to be that the media was a business model that was built on um, checking the truth. Uh, they, they, will, they will be able to uh, monetize the activity of checking what's true and what's not. In the recent election in the U.S., we've seen that a lot of people have received their news in Facebook or in Twitter. Uh, famously, um, actually, in, in, in Google, you would have people advertising uh, news about you know, Trump or about Clinton, which were false. But they will generate a lot of traffic, and therefore they will get a lot of money in advertising revenues. But people will take those news as being true because they were in the Internet, right? In fact, Trump said <laughs> quite recently uh, when confronted about something, he had said that he had read it in the Internet. Therefore, it must be true. Uh, so, so clearly, their media played a really important role in democratic society in checking what statements are true, what are not. Uh, and, and, if, and that is a public good. And to the extent that competition uh, is, uh, is so fierce through, through the offering of free goods that this undermines the capability for generation of, of, uh, of public goods, say, by, by the media, then maybe the government has to there intervene as well. But again, it's not a role for a competition authority. In fact, I would conclude by saying, when you think about it, a competition authority is a state-sanctioned monopoly, right? And it provides its service, competition enforcement, for free. Maybe if we wanted to intervene there, we could ask a competition authority to charge a canon, a fee, to all citizens in the jurisdiction where it's uh, where it's serving. Um, in exchange of which, of course, we all citizens would value their decisions. Uh, and if we think they're wrong, we'll go and try and find another commercial authority to, uh, to do the job uh, maybe better. Obviously, I'm, I'm kidding, right? Uh, I'm, 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 I'm totally joking. Um, competition authority provides competition enforcement services for free, yes, but are they really for free? Well, I'll leave that question to you uh, and for the debate afterwards. Thanks so much, Miguel. Um, we, in order not to miss um, uh, the opportunity to have questions from the audience, I will move directly to Alexandra, and probably after that I will come back with some questions to you. Alexandra, so free goods, <laughs> experiments, uh, behavior aspects of free goods. Are there uh, really concerns and how, concerns the, um, how to define the free goods and uh, theories of harm? Thank you very much, and uh, good afternoon to everyone. And thank you very much for the paper. I think you, you are too modest in the presentation because you, you raise questions, but also you, you give some avenue for, for answer. And the first things you do, and I think it's important to remember, is, is to, 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 to be, we have to be careful of this, um, of this rhetoric of saying, okay, things are free, and as we know, there are things which are really free, but not many, but most of them are, are, are supposedly free, but they are paid in, in one way or another. So um, first, on, on those supposedly free uh, goods or, or, or services, so there are some money at some point somewhere, you know. Uh, clearly what we say is there are more and more of those, and that is probably linked, as you say, 
uh, to the fact that internet is decreasing the cost of distribution and so on, but also that is linked of the fact that you pay with your data. And I think that is one of the main explanation of the explosion of free goods today, of supposedly free goods today, is that you pay with data, and data is so important in a big, big data society. So I think we have to be we have to be very careful here of saying okay things are free uh, and they are not um, they are, do not raise many many problems. I think uh, when we talk about free goods, we have to talk about big data and we have to talk about all the all, all the problems that are raised by big data. And I know you have another very good paper on that as well. But I think that, that we have we have to make the link uh, uh, between both. Now for those supposedly uh, free goods. Uh, what could be um, the harm and what could be um, the implication for antitrust? Now, there is a standard harm, uh, as you have mentioned, uh, uh, bundling, uh, raising barrier to entries, and so on. And then there is probably newer type of harm uh, linked, I think, to, um, to, the big, uh, to the big data issue. But what it means for antitrust, uh, and first, so let's do a standard analysis and market definition, market power, and, uh, and harm. Um, on market definition. There, um, in your paper, you, you, you propose some, some possible adaptation of, of, of uh, market definition because you say, and it's right, first, it's not because there is no price that there is no market. We have to be careful of that kind of trap, you know, saying no price, no market, and you mentioned some case where, where uh, um, uh, a U.S. court uh, fall into that trap. Uh, and then also we have to be careful, even if we think there is a market, of, um, we have to be careful of having a too narrow or too static view of the market. So, so clearly what you say, if I understand you well, is uh, be careful, we have to have a holistic view if we want to have a, 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 a good approach on market definition for those markets because very often the problem will not happen in the free market but will happen elsewhere, so it's important to have an holistic view. Now the difficulty there obviously is that Competition is not very at ease, probably, with that kind of things. You know, I, I study a lot the, the relationship between competition and regulation, and one of the main difference between competition and regulation is that regulation is used to have that kind of uh, holistic view of the market functioning, why often competition starts with a small problem and, and, and builds something around. Yeah? So, so this is a, a, good, a good proposal, but uh, maybe we can be a bit more radical and say maybe we should uh, remove market definition altogether. Yeah? Maybe that's... That's the solution, and to go directly to the issue of market power uh, and, and theory of harm. Now, I know uh, lawyers don't like to, to change much, huh? uh, or many lawyers are conservative, but I think probably that is an occasion to, uh, to push the idea that you have pushed yourself before, huh? saying maybe we should, we should drop altogether um, this market definition step, because probably the cost of it are higher than the benefit. Okay? So then let's go to uh, market power, because obviously you would, you would need to do a market, uh, a market power assessment. And there I think we should go back to what it is. It's, uh, and if we go back to the court of, uh, of justice in Europe, is to say, okay, it's the ability to behave independently. Okay? So we should go back, in fact, to, to, to that issue. Can a company behave independently? Uh, not only on price, but uh, as you say in your paper, on quality or other elements of, of a competition dimension. And there, I think, more than ever, as you have said, the issue is entry barriers. And clearly, the focus uh, should be um, much more than before on, on entry barriers. Now, if you focus on entry barriers, probably the uh, market definition is, is less important than if you focus on market share, for instance. Okay? So let's focus on entry barriers, and let's focus mainly on what is needed in, in this world of uh, innovation, uh, data-driven innovation, 
what are, what are the main things you need to uh, do those kind of data-driven innovation? Because really, the main harm that could happen in, 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 uh, in, in our society today is harm to innovation. I mean, it's harm to data innovation when we talk about free goods, because I think they are, very, they are very much linked. So I think that's really where we have to see who is controlling the main input for, that, for those kind of uh, data-driven innovation. And if some companies are controlling them, so maybe they have market power, and so maybe they should, they should be investigated. And finally, um, the harm <coughs> then, if, if you find some company which, which, are, uh, which, are, uh, which have market power, the harm, as you, as you say in your paper, probably the harm is mainly on, on, on innovation. And that's really where, where you should focus your analysis. But so I think maybe the free goods is an occasion also. The free goods and the data-driven economy is an occasion to rethink more radically, as the, the previous speaker has said, and as you, you propose in your paper, to, f to rethink more radically the application of of, uh, of, uh, of competition law uh, around, around those issues. Uh, market, market power, barrier to entry, barrier to entry to essential input for innovation. I think that's, that's, uh, that's where I would, I would go. On the second issue is the, the, real, the real free goods, and then I will, I will say completely with you, I think, uh, and, and with your paper as well, is um, to say I think the real free good uh, may raise some issue, but probably those are not and some very important issue, probably more important issue than antitrust issue, but um, th those are not antitrust issue and they should probably not be dealt with by an antitrust authority. I mean, and clearly the issue of uh, free newspaper, I mean, as you say, there is a lot of competition in the free newspaper market, but I'm not sure that at the end of the day that's good for the society. You know? uh, as you have mentioned, I think clearly uh, uh, free news is, is, is decreasing the quality of the news and the quality of democracy, as we uh, as we are seeing uh, everywhere uh, now in the world. So um, I think here we have to be careful, but clearly it's not uh, probably not the antitrust authority sh who, who which should be in the driving seat. Having said that, um, the, the the antitrust authority may have a role to play in explaining the competitive <coughs> dynamics. You know, and so I think it, it, it should be good that they partner with a media authority or with a consumer protection authority or with a banking authority to take you example of, uh, of uh, fairness in banking, uh, to, to explain better the competitive dynamics that uh, free goods may, may, uh, may, may raise. So, so there, I think, the, the role of antitrust authority for real free goods may be different, but, uh, but, but, yes, you, uh, but yet useful for an, for an authority who should uh, intervene in for, for those kind, those kind of issues. Those were my, my small comments on, uh, Thanks. on the uh, very, very good paper. Thanks. Thanks so much. Daniel, could I have um, your comment on the proposal by Alexandra to focus on market power and not to deal so much about market definition, focusing on these barriers to entry? What do you think? Uh, well, I, uh, I agree uh, conceptually with what you're saying. Uh, and I think uh, free can be a distraction. So I think uh, we, we agree. If you focus on the source of market power, barriers to entry, high switching costs, uh, that'll get you right to the heart of what's the potential problem. But having said that, I teach, I regularly teach antitrust law to, uh, to lawyers in the United States. And I also, in fact, I'm right now teaching with a federal judge. <coughs> and uh, when judges are writing opinions, market definition seems to be where they focus. So I'm still, it's a long-term project to try to get the courts uh, moving away from market definition, but I think it would be advantageous. By the way, uh, you know, uh, in the U.S. at least, judges are very concerned about being overturned on appeal. <clears throat> and in the U.S., as many of you know, uh, appellate courts worry about principles of law, not the facts. 
So if you're a judge writing an opinion, you can write a very detailed description of market definition and you'll never get overturned. <clears throat> uh, so we, we have these, in the common law, the way opinions are written, we're really locked into market definition because judges like it because they, they can avoid appeals. So we, we're, there's a real tension actually now between, I think, traditional courts, not the judges I teach, of course, the judges I, the, the lawyers I teach are gonna become judges, they're gonna have your viewpoint, but we, it's gonna be a long project because they don't wanna move away from market definition. But I agree with you, we need, we need to find a way to do that. We should, we should almost skip immediately to market power and, and competitive effects. Interesting. Paul. Just one quick, uh, quick reaction to that. I, I don't think it's only uh, judges and conservative lawyers who, who like market definition and concepts of, of dominance and market shares. And I think clients, businesses like the concept. And, and, and the reason they like it is because it, it gives them, if you like, a safe harbor. It gives them some comfort that if, they go, if they're going to introduce an innovative pricing mechanism or, or something of that kind, they, they can get some, some comfort that it's not going to be looked at as an abuse of dominance. So it provides businesses with the freedom to innovate by having that safe harbor. But if I may jump in, don't you think that we can, we can imagine other type of safe harbor, more, more smarter safe harbor? I, I understand that eh? we need safe harbor, but it's not because we had a previous one which which is there, but maybe we, we should think about new safe harbor because clearly certainty is important, but <coughs> I'm not sure that a, a, a old safe harbor is a, a old harbor is always good, you know, to be to be safe. That's, but I see, but I see your point. Huh? Uh, Miguel, uh, there was um, the view that uh, the trust authorities can be, in fact, useful in defining the dynamics in the market, and um, that could be particularly um, useful in uh, the sense that uh, regulation is, uh, by definition, static or slow. Do you see that uh, the trust authorities could be useful in this uh, respect, um, or it is beyond their scope? Well, I think. Going back to Paul's point, it, it may be that on, on you know, providing legal certainty and predictability, I think that to the extent they are helpful because they understand how the markets work, then I would see that a regulatory authority or the government may ask for their opinion or their views. But in my, I, mean, I don't think they should have uh, any decision-making power or mandate to uh, intervene on these matters. Uh, these trade-offs are very delicate trade-offs that should be made at a democratic level. Um, and one of the things that uh, matters for competition enforcement is uh, the independence of the authority. So you cannot mix uh, oil and water uh, too easily, and I think it would be reckless to do so. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Um, let me open the floor for questions. So let's have the first round. Yes, please. Uh, could you, uh, the microphone will come shortly. Um, we will collect two, three questions. Uh, please identify yourself, and then we'll return to the panel. Uh, my name is Paul Lugart. I'm with uh, one of the firms here in Brussels, Baker Botts. Um, <clears throat> I would like to, to raise an issue that goes back to something that you said about the connection between free services and innovation. And I think that many of us will intuitively appreciate that, yes, many of the companies that offer free services are actually very innovative. But then the question arises, how do you factor that into the traditional antitrust analysis? And I'm having great difficulties um, on a fundamental level to find or to articulate the correct analytical framework for doing that because you mentioned the uh, Novozyme matter. That was essentially a horizontal issue. And, 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 and the key question there was, well, will there be less innovation uh, in the market going forward? And in many of the, let's say, 
services that we're talking about, the issue is really one of exclusion and the danger that one of the potentially excluded companies would not be able to innovate. Uh, you mentioned the essential input in terms of data that companies may need if they, if they want to innovate. So wouldn't we need a more rigorous analytical framework to factor in or to properly an analyze the impact of innovation, which we believe, uh, which I think we all believe is, is key to, these, to many of these questions. Thank you. Yes, uh, two questions. Let's go all after. Uh, uh, hello, uh, Scott Marcus, Bruegel. Um, actually, two questions. The first one, in terms of this extra value of free, I wonder in online services how much of that is that once one has to pay, one then has to provide a credit card, and uh, that also opens up all the risk of exposure of the credit card. So there's a transaction cost plus a risk associated with it. Uh, the other question I was going to raise, if I might, is, is just in, you know, we, we've said there's risks of exclusion, there's risks of predatory pricing. Uh, are, are there cases that you, you'd offer as instances where there would be a, sort of a colorable argument that there was such a risk? Uh, a, a few come to mind, including uh, uh, also, for example, some of the zero rating net neutrality issues, like, uh, like the free services offered in India that favored Facebook, that exclude, for example, other social networks. Netscape browser versus Internet Explorer. Which ones do you see where you think there's a, a colorable argument for that? And one last question before we collect. Hi, it's It's a question and a comment. I mean, the, the first uh, the, the reaction from the fact that we've heard from several people that data is a currency. And I think it's really not as a currency because the currency is fungible. It has the same value for everybody. And exactly the topic of this discussion is that the data doesn't have the same value for everybody. Second, this data is not rival. I can give my name to as many people as I want. I give just to give my name to many people here. It didn't cost me more to give it to as many people here. Uh, I can give access to my web history to as many people as I want if I configure my browser this way. And actually, the most valuable data that Facebook and Twitter have <laughs> is generated by Facebook and Twitter. It's where I click uh, the things I like. Um, so uh, it truly is not a currency, and we should stop calling it a currency. Uh, my second point is that it doesn't mean that my data, giving my data has no cost about it. Uh, we've been talking a lot about it. Maybe it's time to read what research says, and maybe it's time to do more research. There's actually uh, some research that was done, at least as I know, in Dusseldorf. And there's, uh, there are these like, field studies, and we ask people, uh, they ask people, uh, how much does it cost to give their contact list and their Facebook account uh, 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 logins? And it typically costs, uh, on average, 15, the people are ready to sell them for 15 to 19 euros. So there is actually some research that is done, and maybe it's time to uh, use this research and, 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 and do more research to actually feel, uh, feed the, the public debate. That would be maybe a healthy thing to do. Thank you very much. Um, let's go back uh, to the panelists, the speakers. Um, who wants to have the floor? <clears throat> well, uh, see, in reverse order, I thank the third set of comments. I thought they were really interesting and helpful, and, and I, I will look forward to hearing more about that. Uh, in, in response to, to Scott, the, the kinds of free good examples I worry about are certain examples of, of say, loyalty uh, uh, rebates, uh, which amount to two things being free, where <clears throat> where uh, under certain circumstances the, the loyalty arrangement is one that, particularly loyalty rebates that, if, that make things kind of free uh, but are tied to the market share of the business that you give to the customer you give, give given the rebate. I think those kinds, of rebate, those kinds of rebates are potentially 
problematic. And I could go with it. I could give you more examples if we had more time. Uh, but there have been a number of U.S. cases where market share rebates really uh, were a concern. Uh, I think, it, for example, I think underlying the AMD Intel dispute uh, were market share rebates. Uh, um, and then in response to the first comment, I, I thought I agreed with what you said. We, need, we really need to, to go further in sort of uh, providing the right analytical framework, and we don't really quite have it yet. But I think we have some agreement on the panel that we have to zero in on the source of, if there's an antitrust problem, we have to zero in on what's really dri the driving force of the problem. And we, we haven't really done that yet. We're, we have to think harder about w how does free tie to things like barriers to entry or other, other constraints. And I think we're, we're on the way, but we, we've got a long way to go. So. Yeah, well, uh, I agree that is not a currency for me. I take the, well, I think f first all those characterization of data is very, we have to be very careful because it depends very much on which type of data we are, which type of data we are talking about and what kind of use of data we are making. So I think I, I, I'm always a bit worried when, when there is those characterization being currency or, or, or anything. But the, the least worst characterization I have read is one proposed by the OECD in the report last year, which is saying data is an infrastructure for innovation. I think that's, to me, that's the most convincing or the less worst <laughs> characterization I have seen. Because indeed, I mean, and, and, and to come back to your point about innovation, clearly we need to have a framework. The problem is that first we need to understand how innovation is happening before having the antitrust consequence. And I think we are just on the verge of having a framework to understand what kind of innovation, disruptive or not, and so on. But I think data there is now an infrastructure for innovation. I think that, that to me, that is quite obvious when we, when we see a, a lot of innovation we have here. Any no, comments from an input? Um, yeah. So I, I will, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll just address um, Paul's very provocative question. I, I think that um, we will uh, have always difficulties in understanding, you know, where innovation comes from. I was trying to illustrate with a number of examples earlier in my intervention that, that you know, pricing innovation, um, the fact that the digital economy has led to so many opportunities, um, has generated a lot of innovation, but it could not be predicted, right? So, Skype, uh, Facebook, uh, Google itself, many of these companies that are now household names. Um, have evolved uh, through very innovative activity, much, much of which involved providing free goods or services one way or the other. It would have been, I think, irresponsible of the competition authority, we look back in time some years ago to say, well, because I see a company offering something free, that's predatory pricing. Or because I see a company engaging in, in, in multi-product bundling, uh, including free components, that's going to be an abuse of dominance. Or similarly, I see a company taking over, a pharmaceutical company take, taking over, a, a small innovator has a good research idea, I'm going to prohibit that deal, even though that might allow that small innovator to reach and, 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 and diffuse its product worldwide. I think the answer, therefore, is we have a trade-off between merger control and antitrust enforcement. Um, I would say, Let's not intervene a lot of mergers. Wait until you know, things play out in the market. Let's then use our enforcement tools, export enforcement tools, to determine what something has, has been you know, problematic and learn from that. But, you know, and this is maybe the key message, let's try and look at the effects of these practices. Right? Uh, I'm sure many of us in this room will agree that an effects-based analysis is, is maybe more necessary than ever, precisely, because it's difficult 
to uh, predict, to have a crystal ball about you know, what, who's going to come and innovate next time around, or where is innovation going to come from. So it's not that our instruments are not well suited for the job. It's just that we need to think of different balance of, of how to apply them. Very good. Um, do you want to say something? So let's go. We have time for one or two final questions. There is a question there. And then here. Simon Hampton, I'm a software engineer. Um, the uh, data is the root of, uh, of all of these services. And I'm sort of thinking now, you know, the next generation of, uh, of services that people seem to be interested in are artificial intelligence enhanced personal assistance. At which point, um, this sort of gaffer notion, you know, four, four individual monopolists, they all suddenly become sort of four competitors because they've all got these artificial intelligence personal assistance products and they're all rooted in the data that they've collected either as search or as social networking or as shopping um, or as uh, iPhone using. Um, has this changed the dynamics in these markets? Good question. And here, there is one last question because you don't have time. Thank you, Fernando Herrera from Telefonica. Uh, my only concern is about uh, keep all the discussion has been very nice, but you have keep all the time speaking about free markets when they are not actually free. And that's a problem with the name. I mean, for a market to be free, then there is not counter, uh, counter transactions. There should, the people who is offering the product for free should not get anything in exchange of what he is giving. And that is not the case in all the markets you have, you have talked about. Maybe there are markets in the world in which the people who is giving the product away is not expecting anything from the receiver. But it is not the case with the internet markets. In the internet markets, both Google or anyone you can think of is waiting something. Is expecting something for the, for the receiver of their supposedly free good. So my first proposal would be stop calling this a free market because it's not a free market. The only problem with this market is that these transactions are not measured in money. They are measured in other commodities that are not money. So. Uh, my proposal, and I want to think what the, the, the panelists think about that, is let's measure these markets in other, in other commodities. Stop measuring, trying to measure this market in money, and maybe the thing fits with the current tools of antitrust or, or with other of the problems that has been proposed in the table. But for me, still the main issue is do not call free something that is not free. Before we go to back to the speakers for their final answer, just to say that this event is called Zero Price Markets, not Free Markets. <laughs> so please, uh, who wants to address these last two questions? Well, I, I agree with the last comment and in, in answer the first comment, which I thought was really very interesting. I was going to pull out Siri to give an answer to you because <laughs> she knows everything and actually everything I get from her. But uh, that, your point is well taken. Uh, that's worth thinking. We may be going there very soon. Yeah, you, just, uh, just, uh, just a reaction on the, on the, on the data points. Just a couple of, couple of points on that. I mean, first of all, I think you, you, the concerns about sharing data, I mean, that, that becomes a parameter of competition. I think that's a, a brief point to make, but, but, it, but it is the protections that the different platforms give to your data is one of the quality parameters that we've, we've been talking about. But to, but to come to the perhaps, perhaps the, perhaps the bigger point about, about um, artificial intelligence and, 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 and platform competition, 
um, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think it's absolutely right. There's lots of interesting debate outside the scope of this discussion about how artificial intelligence is going to change the competitive process and can competition all apply to that, which I could talk for long and hard on, but I won't because you've all got to go. But, um, but I think, you know, just to illustrate, illustrate the point, I think what you're making is, is that you have a lot of large competitors with essentially large data sets which are fairly similar. Uh, trying to find innovative ways to use that data to provide better services and the next big thing. And, and I'll illustrate this with, uh, with um, it's not original, but, but, but a, a comment about, about Google, which Halvarian makes, which is that, that if, if, if the aliens and Martians landed on Google um, tomorrow uh, and took away all of its data, they, then the next day Google would carry on more or less as it is today. But if it came down and took all of the engineers and their intelligence and their analysis and analytical ability, Left the data, then Google will be in real trouble. So it's it's not the data is important, but it's actually how you analyze the data that's more important. Thank you, Paul. Before closing, Alexandre, Miguel, final comments. Yeah, uh, just a, a new point. Uh, I agree with you, and I think we, we we should write a paper on all the false terminology we are using now because free is not free, sharing is not sharing, um, uh, disintermediation is not disintermediation, it's reintermediation with global platforms. So, so I think no, but I think we have a problem here with terminology because we use so much in, those, in this new economy false terminology, which then may lead to false analysis. So I agree with you. Having said that, there are some very free goods, as you were, or real free goods, as it's mentioned in the, in, in the paper and in the slide. So I, I think uh, we, we should not hope, uh, lose hope for altruism uh, in, in this world either. Thank you. Miguel. So just one final thought on, on your point. Um, I think your point is really about, beyond an issue of terminology, but I think it's fundamentally as well a point about market definition. Um, and um, I think we as economists have been maybe too successful in persuading our you know, legal counterparts that we should use tools like SNP, which appear to be very accurate, uh, but in today's world uh, are hardly ever used. Uh, and when they're used, they're typically not put to, you know, to, a, um, <laughs> to its proper uh, application. And, and so I would in a way, um, say that we still need to have defined markets, precisely because otherwise we don't know what we're talking about and we, we confuse each other, not only because, because business people and judges like to talk about markets because you know, we're talking about competition, and which has to take place in some marketplace to be something that we want to intervene or, or engage with. Um, but the problem is that sometimes, um, as, as economists, we get too carried away with our, um, with our very sophisticated tools, and maybe we need to do what what Dan was sort of suggesting, um, and, and go and see where is the action happening, where is the money being exchanged, and for example, look at um, advertising market when we're looking at situations like that of Google, and, and that applies also across in other other markets. So um, we just need to maybe rethink the way we think about defining markets. Thank you very much. Unless there is any other point you want to make, I would like to invite the audience uh, to thank all together the speakers for the great presentation. Thanks so much for being here. Enjoy this beautiful weather. <laughs> Have a nice afternoon.